Welcome to Redevelopment Trailblazers, where we talk to the innovators who tackle complex issues to help rebuild America's distressed communities. These pioneers have worked to strengthen the redevelopment economy throughout their careers, using creative, sustainable, environmental, and economic practices to transform the country's most challenging brownfield sites, neighborhoods, and regions. Hi, this is Leslie Parrish, and I'll be your host for Redevelopment Trailblazers. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Neil Pariser, who serves as a Senior Advisor for Community and Economic Development at VitaNova. My conversation with Neil today will focus on his time at the South Bronx Overall Economic Development Corporation, or SOBRO for short, where he was most recently the Senior Vice President. Neil spent three decades at SOBRO directing the planning, acquisition, financing, and construction of huge swaths of retail and industrial space, uh, doing affordable housing development, and doing 10 commercial revitalization projects. As part of these efforts, he led the formation of the Bronx's first business improvement district, and he also served as vice president of New York City's Brownfield Partnership. So Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Leslie. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, as I mentioned when I was giving a few highlights of your work at Sobro, you've really been at the forefront of efforts to transform and revitalize the South Bronx. So I'm hoping we can start our conversation with you taking us, you know, a bit back in time to talk about what spurred these really decades-long redevelopment efforts. Sure. Can you describe what the catalysts were, you know, for embarking on this effort in the first place and maybe paint us a picture of the challenges that the area was facing at that time? Sure, I'd love to. There are a lot of causes for what created this thing we call the South Bronx. And it really goes back, I think, to right after World War II, when there was this mass exodus of people from what what was really worker housing that was built in the West Bronx, people looking for homes, you know, private homes, looking to move to the East Bronx. And so there was this phenomenon that people called white flight, which was that population that went from the southeast section of the borough to more middle-class homes uh, north of the Bronx and Westchester, as well as Long Island. One of the major triggers is, of course, Robert Moses, who oversaw the creation of the Cross Bronx Expressway. And if you're not familiar with that, the Cross Bronx connects the George Washington Bridge with the Throgs Neck and Whitestone Bridges. The population that he displaced when he dug this huge trench, which became the Cross Bronx Expressway, uh, led to an incredible number of people that had to leave mid Bronx and moved to the South Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, you can easily Google a picture of the Cross Bronx Expressway to see some very disturbing images of the amount of neighborhood that was affected by the Cross Bronx. When that happened, there was a certain cascading of events. The next thing that happened was there is a development in the Northeast Bronx that people fled to called Co-op City. And this was built in 1968. And Co-op City provided over 15,000 units of housing. That led to a huge drain of the remaining middle-class population that went to the northeast of the borough of the Bronx. You were left, therefore, in the South Bronx with an increasingly ethnic population, a poor population that did not have proper resources. 
And that unfortunately led to a very disturbing pattern of landlord abandonment. Much of the South Bronx, you know, and even today, of course, privately owned. And it became increasingly difficult, given the population, to collect your rent. And what we were experiencing was this tremendous amount of arson that took out whole blocks in the South Bronx. The most famous, of course, being the Charlotte Street area. And I was actually on a task force with the mayor's office when I worked at the Department of City Planning in the Bronx. And the purpose of the task force was to begin to try to identify buildings that we thought were in danger of arson. And one of the parameters we came up with, which worked very well, was the fact that in a lot of these old walk-up buildings, you had very nice stained glass put in the fire stairs to provide light. They were worth a lot of money. And we would always see that the stained glass was removed within a certain period of time before the buildings burned. Hmm. So there's some very telling things that led to it. But at the end of the day, we were left with a landscape in the South Bronx, which became, unfortunately, uh, world-renowned. I'm sure uh, many of you have heard of Tom Wolfe, his movie, The Bonfires of the Vanities, which really was another one of these nails in our coffin in terms of image, which portrayed the South Bronx as totally menacing, totally devastated, and totally devoid of any culture. And so this was the South Bronx that I knew when I began my career after graduate school uh, with the Department of City Planning. And so how did you come to be involved in the revitalization effort? You were were with the city and their city planning work. How did you start to be engaged at Sobro and in this redevelopment work generally? Sure. I did my master's work at NYU. I originally wanted to be an architect, and I took a couple of things there, but that was not my calling, I realized. So I took up majors in economics and real estate, and I ended up with two master's degrees from NYU in both public administration and urban planning. So my very first job, I was at HPD, the city's housing and preservation development department. And I really enjoyed working on an urban renewal project right by Chinatown in the bottom of Manhattan. And I was in charge of providing the residents of this area with the understanding of what our urban renewal plans were. After that, I did that for for two years or so. I, I really wanted to do more planning work. And I applied and ended up in the Bronx office of the Department of City Planning. So that was up in the South Bronx. And I can remember uh, my first day on the job, a couple of the guys that said to me, come on up, we're going to go to the roof. I go, why are we going to the roof? Because I want to show you something. And we go up to the roof of our building, which was a six-story office building. And we went on the roof. And sure enough, they pointed out in the distance smoke rising up from different areas in the South Bronx. And they said, this is what we're facing. So that was my introduction to the South Bronx and to what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time at city planning, working on zoning, trying to influence developers to want to come to the South Bronx in light of all of the publicity and the negative issues. And I came to realize after a couple of years that while I enjoyed doing that, I wanted to actually be the builder. 
And so I began casting around to see who was looking for an urban planner that really wanted to cut his teeth as a developer. And I came upon this place called Sobro, which was literally six blocks away and was interviewed there. And I came to them. They were really developed more as an education and employment center. And so what I came up with, the skill set, allowed Sobro to diversify into commercial, residential, and economic development. And so Sobro became one of the early players in learning the housing field, in learning what do you do in burnt out areas like the South Bronx, and how do you begin to frame an approach to ending the trauma that the borough had seen over these many years. That really sets the table for talking about how this kind of decades-long redevelopment activity got underway. And I'm wondering if you could tell us, you know, what what kind of time period are we in? We went from World War II through kind of the 60s and the 70s when you were painting us a picture earlier. How did you and Sobro kind of set out to tackle this redevelopment work? And maybe if you could give us, you know, some specific success stories that you had along the way. Sure. Sobro was established back in 73. But what happened in 73, of course, was it was a very depressed area. And um, there was really not much going on the way in physical development. In 1977, Jimmy Carter actually came to the South Bronx with his wife, Rosalind. And he toured that area I mentioned before, Charlotte Street. And the reason is that the South Bronx became the epitome of the failure of urban life. And of course, every president after that had had an issue, including Ronald Reagan, who came right after Jimmy with his wife, Nancy. And in 1980, Reagan toured Charlotte Street. He was heckled by the residents who demanded help. And he actually was able to muster the first onslaught of what was a partnership between the federal government, New York State, New York City, and not-for-profit organizations like Sobro. In order to develop an area like the South Bronx, you have to have resources. You have to know who those resources are, and you have to be aggressive in going out and getting them. So when this whole issue of rebuilding the South Bronx became the mantra for a lot of different agencies, we, Sobro, began to evolve and adapt to that philosophy. So the first area that I looked at, because the South Bronx is huge, it's a quarter of the borough of uh, the Bronx. It's the Southwest Quadrant. It's enormous. So I picked an area that I knew had tremendous potential because it fronted the Harlem River and East Rivers on the very southern end of the borough. It's called Port Morris. Port Morris got its name because it literally was a port where ocean-going vessels would bring in goods and supplies for the manufacturing facilities in the South Bronx. In looking at the Port Morris area, I was not looking at residential because this was strictly an industrial area. And I think I mentioned that one of Sobro's philosophies was you just don't build housing. You must also follow that through with jobs for residents and for places where they could shop. So I started my very first building was in the Port Morris district. It was a 120,000 square foot abandoned six-story building. 
The city had taken the building in tax arrears probably a decade before I discovered the, the structure. Worked out a deal with the city where they leased the building to me for a dollar, and I had to go out and get the resources to develop the building. Ultimately, I was successful in getting grants from the New York State Urban Development Corporation, from the Federal Housing and Urban Development Corporation, and the city of New York. The monies combined allowed me to renovate together with assistance from the Urban Development Corporation, who provided the engineering oversight, a home, a six-story, 120,000-square-foot home for what became 300 people working in different factories in the building. The building is still active today. It's not a factory building now. It's uh, sort of moved on and progressed. It's partly commercial and partly some storage. So having that experience with Port Morris, we looked at the building of our areas also from a residential point of view. We were starting to focus on job development. I did some commercial building so that there were stores and that type of thing. But we began our real housing effort probably back in the middle 80s. And we started looking in our neighborhood And, you know, one of the things I want to impress upon everybody is that when you have a challenge as large as the South Bronx, no one agency, no one can do this alone. This is a partnership of many different players. So we staked out our territory where we wanted to make an impact in housing and in economic development. And it was in in addition to Port Morris, we included the area up and around Bruckner Boulevard. And we went up uh, not only to Port Morris, but up to Prospect area as well, the Prospect Park neighborhood. So having done that, we began to identify individual sites for housing. And we were able to link up with developers who had the seed money we needed to do the creation of a tax credit plan. We were able to source property because we knew our area in and around Port Morris and Morrisania and those areas better than pretty much anybody else. And so we began a program to identify sites that we thought could be created for affordable housing. We found partnerships in the private sector with developers who could utilize those tax credits and those development fees to stay alive. And we so bro, our philosophy always was you have to do well to do good. If you want to stay as an institution in your community and provide real service, you have to do well. You have to make money and you can't just rely on those grants that are out there. Mm -hmm. So Sobro, we created very intentionally a, quote, profit-centered real estate division where we created stores that paid us rent. We created housing where we were the managers and ultimately created fees. And that is pretty much the formula that we adopted going forward. In looking back after years at the Port Morris area, again, back where Tom Wolfe was, you know, this is an area that you have uh, vistas of Manhattan. There's a subway one stop away from Manhattan. And it occurred to the Department of City Planning and it occurred to us over at Sobro that, hey, we are missing out on waterfront developments that might really be very impactful for people. And city planning began an effort 
to do a massive rezoning of Port Morris, a mixed-use industrial and manufacturing designation that would allow a mix of housing with manufacturing. And we, Sobro, were extremely excited by that and joined forces and helped to pretty much gerrymander where we needed to keep industry intact, but where we could actually see residential beginning to displace what were older factory buildings. And if today you were to go down that same Bruckner Boulevard where Tom Wolfe had the, the hero of his story being attacked by gangs, you will see condominiums. You will see beautiful brand new glass rentals. And the area around Port Morris haven't taken advantage of those proximities to Manhattan and the subway has been phenomenal. And it's one of the things that I think I'm most proud of in terms of the fact that I had a role to play in that, in addition to doing the industrial development that we did. Thanks. That's great. And I appreciate you giving us kind of a picture of, you know, if you were to walk down the street today, you know, what it, what it looks like and how different that was from right. decades ago. I, I encourage everybody to do the Google Earth thing mm-hmm. and do a drive down Bruckner Boulevard between uh, Hunts Point Avenue and the Third Avenue Bridge. It's a new world. It was a world that I can't recognize anymore, having known it so well from before. Mm -hmm. It is definitely a success story. And it's one which I think sort of stands as an object lesson for many inner city communities, because it's the same series of problems. You know, if I'm I'm in uh, Gary, Indiana, I'm looking at the same kind of issues in Gary that we faced in the South Bronx. And Vita Nova has done quite a bit of very good work in these communities, trying to help them reposition and rethink what does this neighborhood want to be? You know, certainly not the dwelling and the slum, but we want to create opportunities for housing. And how do we do that? So it's a dynamic model. And I think it's one that every community needs to really begin to grapple with the fact that you just don't pick a block and do housing. Look at the context of where that housing is and what do you need to do to make it the most successful housing in the area? And I think that's what planning is about. That's what development is about. And you need to also really join those partnerships because I go back to the fact that nothing can happen without resources. And that's part of the reason why I also say you need to also develop in-house resources to generate the kind of funding you need so that you're in the game of a revitalization for the long run, not for the short run. Mm-hmm. Making it sustainable and, and profitable so that it can, it can continue, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We know this is a capitalist society, much as a lot of people don't want to say that, but it works. And so even a not-for-profit, you know, has to be encouraged to try to generate the income that will help it be there for the long run. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Neil. That's about all the time we have today, but I really appreciated you coming on and joining us and really appreciated learning about the South Bronx's transformation. I know I'll be going to Google Earth after this to, to look at those blocks. Good. Please do. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Leslie. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And for our listeners who want to dig in a bit more, there's a link to a recorded webinar with Neil on our Redevelopment Institute website that we'll put in the show notes for you. 
Thanks for listening and please join us soon for another episode of Redevelopment Trailblazers. You can find all our episodes and lots of other information on our website, redevelopmentinstitute.org. Thank you for listening to Redevelopment Trailblazers, presented by the Redevelopment Institute. For more information on successful strategies for brownfields redevelopment, urban renewal, and community revitalization, visit our website at redevelopmentinstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. See you next time.